0: Welcome back to Dancewell Podcast third season. This is Marissa Schaefer, one of the Dancewell Podcast co-hosts, and I have the pleasure of sharing our first episode of season three with you. Before we begin, though, I want to say thank you to a few people. First, to Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzi for our new introduction, Soundscape, which you'll hear in just a moment. I went to college with the both of them where we collaborated on a few artistic endeavors, and I'm so glad to have the opportunity to call on them again. Uh, they've done really fabulous work. To all of you who have contributed to Dance Well to make our third season possible, Ellie and I are extremely grateful. Your contributions enable us to keep doing what we love doing, which is to share more informative and valuable content with you, our listeners. And speaking of which, if you're coming to the annual I Adams Conference this fall in Montreal, Ellie and I would love to have the opportunity to meet some of you. We'll be presenting a poster on dancer well-being on Thursday afternoon and look forward to seeing some of you there. And now onto episode 50. So on this episode, we welcome back Lauren McIntyre to talk about a topic on which she's an expert and speaks passionately about, which is emergency protocols. I thought of her and her expertise on this subject uh, and about having her on another podcast episode in 2018 as I started providing coverage at a large dance school and company and came face to face uh, with some near emergencies myself. I kind of remember the first time I was called from my clinic into a studio where a dancer had fell, and though I had training, I was panicked, um, and everyone turned out to be okay, but it made me acutely aware that emergencies can happen in any location, whether or not you're prepared, and whether or not people are healthy, and, uh, you know, all contributing factors are accounted for. So... On this episode with Lauren, we'll talk about the importance of creating an emergency protocol that is unique to your space, discuss the players in an emergency protocol and when to call 911, and outline the things that you should have on hand in case of an emergency. Lauren McIntyre, ATC, graduated from Grand Valley State University with a degree in athletic training in 2010. She has been on staff at the Harkness Center for Dance Injuries at NYU, where I work with her as well, since she graduated and is now a clinical specialist providing care for dancers in all genres and levels. Lauren also does numerous educational lectures, workshops, and wellness assessments for dancers annually. In addition, Lauren works at SUNY Purchase College Conservatory of Dance, my alma mater, serving as their athletic trainer and dance anatomy professor. Lauren's research interests is in concussion and dance, and she was recently published in the Journal of Athletic Training for her work in concussion baseline assessment in dancers. Lauren has a background in voice and piano, and is a 12-time marathoner. Enjoy. Buckle your seatbelt. On this episode, nutrition, life coach, dance and performance, psychological, training. Training. and today you are Family in for a Hi, hello. This is Ellie Kushner, and this is Marissa Schaefer from DanceWell Podcast. DanceWell Podcast. Dancewell Podcast. Hello, this is Marissa Schaefer, and I'm here with DanceWell Podcast And welcome, Lauren McIntyre, for your second Dance Well <gasps> interview. Hello. I'm so excited to be back again. Me too. Um, so Lauren is going to talk about a topic that she is very versed in, which is emergency protocols. Um, so without further ado, can you just start by talking to us about what's an emergency protocol? What type of emergencies and settings are you referring to?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I want to emphasize that all dance settings are vulnerable to an emergency from the studio to the stage, you know, I think we get in this thought of, you know, emergencies don't happen. And you're kind of right. There is a low incidence. We're not going to see a lot of emergencies, but we shouldn't let that give us a false sense of security. Totally. So the type of injuries and illnesses that might be categorized as an emergency are things like head injuries, fractures, severe bleeding, cardiac arrest, respiratory distress or arrest that might be caused from choking, asthma, allergies, overdose, even anxiety mm-hmm. could cause a respiratory problem. And unfortunately, in 2019, we also need to be thinking about active shooters, which is not something that you know we want to talk about, but we do need, need to be prepared for. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like in other sports and activities, the audience or attendees are something we're also thinking about when it comes uh, to emergencies. Elderly audience members, for sure, but really anyone with a known or unknown medical condition could have a life-threatening emergency at any time, and certainly the dancers themselves. You know, I think we like to think of ourselves as very healthy people, um, but healthy people are vulnerable, and healthy-appearing people yeah. may not be actually healthy or have conditions that predispose them, um, you know, to a cardiovascular issue, something like that. Um, and we also know that dancers may not have insurance or the finances to see a primary care doctor yearly. Um, or maybe we haven't asked our family what our family history is. So there may be some unknown variables coming into play. Um, you know, I don't wanna scare people, um, but we can't assume that because we're active and we work out or you know, we're performing regularly that we're exempt from serious illness or injury.
0: Absolutely.
1: Uh, and then finally, my last thought on this is that Many dancers perform in unique places. Oh, yes. <laughs> so especially the summertime, think about parks and outdoor plazas, but warehouses, um, playgrounds, beaches. Um, these places aren't necessarily equipped with emergency supplies um, or may have like an administrator or someone in charge um, that would organize the crowd and performers if an emergency happened. So I think as performers in these venues, we really need to be thinking about emergency action plans.
0: Mm-hmm. Even in safest environments, accidents do happen. Exactly. Um, can you talk about who who is involved in enacting, like, an emergency protocol? Sure. So um, when I was thinking about this question, the first thing that comes to mind
1: is emergency action plans. Mm-hmm. That is our guideline, mm-hmm. right? And so this is going to help us prepare for incidents and kind of delegate who is going to be involved. Um You know, they would identify the players that are potentially going to be there, what their exact role is going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, But we should remember that anyone can save a life. Um, The most important thing when we talk about emergencies is identifying that there is, in fact, an emergency occurring, which seems very simple, but many people are in denial that there's something wrong, or we may be glued in our phones or just simply not aware of the world around us. So we need to get our heads up. We need to be okay with acknowledging that there is something potentially seriously wrong here, mm-hmm. um, and that first step is going to be identifying and then calling nine one one. And anyone can do that, um, and that's really the first step in what we call the cardiac chain of survival, which mm-hmm. is this five step process that, if someone is in a cardiac arrest, is going to pro or I guess improve the chance. Um, of survival after. But we don't have to just apply that to cardiac events. It could be anything. Mm-hmm. Identify it and call 911. So there will be many people involved, but remember that you, even if you're not listed on the emergency action plan, can also be involved and save a life.
0: Calling 911 is, like, kind of a big deal. Yeah. I, like, just when you say it, I even notice it myself. I'm you're like, like okay. I'm anxious. <laughs> 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 this podcast makes me scared. Yes. So... Um, would we call 911 or would you advocate for someone calling 911 um, in the case of like someone, let's say you're in a partnering lift and someone has fallen? Um, or like, when, uh, what, what's the threshold for the 911 yeah. call? I get this question all the time in CPR class too. Mm-hmm. And
1: I think it's partially your comfort level. So if it makes you uncomfortable, call 911. Yeah. Right? Your, your patient or your victim can always refuse care. But then it's on them, and it's on a professional that does this for their job, right? Right. So even though I teach CPR and I'm always talking about emergency action plans, it's not what I do 100 percent of my time. Mm-hmm. I would much rather EMS be there if I had any question as to whether they were needed, and then we can make a decision together. Mm-hmm. So I think the threshold a lot has, or I think the threshold has a lot to do with our comfort level. Mm-hmm. Um, I with the healthcare practitioners, a lot of times I equate it to referring. You know, you'd be with the patient, things aren't really going well. You're like, you know, I think you need to go back to the doctor. Kind of the same with EMS. Even if something, you're like, oh, we've got it. This fracture is stable. Everything's great. And then something starts to deteriorate. Mm -hmm. You can change your mind. You can call 911 later. Um, So, you know, again... The list of, when we teach a first aid or CPR class, the list of reasons why you might call 911 is really lengthy, mm-hmm. which I think, again, points to the idea that you could call for a lot of different reasons. and you, something that might not necessarily trigger someone else might trigger you. Right. One of the things that they've listed is you're uncertain. Right. So if you're not certain to call, call. maybe call. Right. Yeah, there's no harm in calling. Um, the dispatcher will be very educated on getting the information from you. And when EMS shows up, they're going to determine whether or not they need to take action. Um, you know, I think what choking is one we kind of get into that. Should I call? Should I not call? Again, if you're engaged with, um, you know, choking, rescuing, so you're doing back blows and abdominal thrusts, mm-hmm you might as well call. Right. (laughs) Right. Worst case scenario is that they don't, you don't get the object out Mm -hmm. and you're very glad EMS is there to help. Best case scenario is you get the object out and EMS shows up and, and the, the person is fine. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm giving a very great answer to a very complicated question, but I think it's comfort level. It's, Remember, you can always change your mind. Mm-hmm. And I would say call if you're uncertain um, or even that little inkling um, because it does take time for them to show up. And if things start to deteriorate, you'll be very glad you called sooner rather than calling later. And again, we're, we're causing maybe a tenor or so maybe more delay depending on where you live. Right. Exactly.
0: And I think you brought up something important like in the middle of that, which is you're calling and you are talking to a trained professional who deals with emergencies. So it's not just like you're calling and then suddenly they're sending the (laughs) fire trucks and the EMS and like (laughs) everybody. (laughs) Everyone's there. Right. So it's not going to, yeah, they're going to assess a situation or help you assess a situation uh, and and give you an idea of what needs to happen.
1: Exactly. And that dispatcher will stay with you on that call. Mm -hmm. So they're there to to be a voice in your head. Yes. So again, exactly. never hurts to call. And if they decide they don't need to send anyone, maybe they're able to talk you down or, exactly. um, yeah, they're helpful people.
0: They are. They are. Um, OK, so we've identified that everyone, really, <laughs> everyone yes. at the scene, um, uh, passive bystanders, well, they we shouldn't be passive, but bystanders, everyone is involved in an emergency protocol. Um, so uh, who are the players uh, who are going to be you know, involved in the emergency itself?
1: Yeah, so, again, emphasizing that everybody, whether they want to or not, right. if you are on the scene, you end up having some sort of a role or you're affected by it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important to remember. Um, I think we oftentimes think of EMS, so our 911 dispatcher, and, and the people who will show up, plus our medical providers that may be on the scene as being the primary actors. Mm-hmm. But actually, there are a lot of other people that will have really important roles. Um, so the, the emergency action plan is going to outline – what all of those people, including your medical, but also administrators or even dancers themselves might be expected to do. And what works in maybe a studio environment may not work in the stage um, or a theater environment. And one of the examples I like to give for this is that our theater emergency action plan has some really fun characters in the play. So we have the stage manager, we have the light board operator, we've got the crew, the ushers. They're all actually going to have a role, Yeah. right? So um, the stage manager might need to do an announcement over the intercom that, you know, the show may be paused for a moment or help evacuate. In conjunction with the ushers, the crew might need to lower the curtain. The light board may need to bring up the house lights, um, and that all is actually going to be in the emergency action plan mm-hmm. because then people can look at it and they know exactly what they need to do in that moment. Um, you know, I think in the environment of maybe a dance studio or conservatory, the dancers are going to play a really big role because. I know in my experience, they're the ones that actually tell me something's wrong. Right. Usually one of them is running down the athletic training room and saying, Lauren, something, 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 something. Yeah, And then that activates it. Um, so they have a huge role. And a lot of times I rely on them to, you know, maybe usher other dancers out of the studio mm-hmm. or um, maybe grab something for me right? So if I didn't have my athletic training student with me, I wouldn't have any hesitation in asking a dance teacher or a dance student to go get the AED. Yeah. And I would be able to point out where that is and have them bring it. So people are going to play a role for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I know that can be traumatic to think about sometimes, but, um, you know, most people are able to step up in that moment, um, and contribute, which
0: is really, really great. Um, I imagine that, again, I think we're going to get to this later, so my apologies, That's but I imagine fine. that having one person who is kind of at the helm of this, uh, of, of helping direct people um, is a good thing. If, if you are in a space where you don't, have, let's say, a rote uh, emergency protocol where it's like, Lauren is the athletic trainer. And in case of an emergency, you know, call 911 and call Lauren if she's in the space and figure this out. Um, would you suggest that someone step up and then help delegate? Yeah, it's, it's so
1: important to have someone kind of take charge of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and I may have planned on bringing this up later, but it doesn't really matter when it comes up. Yep. It's important to remember that we shouldn't assume that someone has stepped up. Yeah. Um, most often the case, it's that that's happening. Someone's assumed someone's called 911. Mm-hmm. Someone assumes that someone else is in charge. I wouldn't necessarily do that. And right. again, that's why an emergency action plan can be so valuable, because it takes the assumptions out. Right. This is the person in charge, so there should be a primary contact a secondary contact, a tertiary contact. So if those two people aren't there, the tertiary tertiary person on. is on mm-hmm. and needs to be ready to be on. So um, I think that's why they're so important and great that we're doing this at the beginning of the school year because this should be set in place by now. Yeah. And if it's not, never too late, start now. Yep. <laughs> um, because that's going to take the assumption out of it. In those situations, I'm not going to say most people, but I do think there's a hesitation to step up. Totally. Why would you want to put yourself in charge of an emergency? I mean, that's scary. It's scary. There's a lot of responsibility. What if it goes wrong? Yeah. Those are all the thoughts that go through people's head. And there's definitely research to show that people have hesitations to step in. So, um, you know, I do think it's valuable to have someone who's leading. Mm -hmm. Um, But we do need to recognize that that's probably not going to happen organically. And so that's why a plan is vital, because it really does take the assumption out of it. Right. Absolutely.
0: Um, So what kind of training would you advocate that the layman, dancer, dance teacher, et cetera, have um, to be able to handle emergency situations? So certainly CPR and AED.
1: So Mm -hmm. AED stands for automated external defibrillator. Um, Those are just beyond valuable um, yeah. can certainly help you save a life. Um, but what's great about that training is it doesn't just teach you how to do CPR and AED, it also kind of breaks down the emergency process, yeah. right? How are you able to assess a scene that it's actually safe for you to intervene? Mm-hmm. How are you able to tell if someone is actually suffering from an emergency? Um, so there are a lot of valuable skills that go along with that course. I think it's important to remember that um, unless you practice this information right. frequently, it goes fast. Mm-hmm. So, this, the research says that in three months, that knowledge has deteriorated significantly. So, make sure you're refreshing. And, you know, Red Cross or American Heart Association, they have refreshers, they have sheets that you can review. Set an alarm on your phone every three months to just, hey, do I remember what the rate of compressions to breath is? Right. Right. Um, Beyond that, uh, first aid is certainly another helpful training, so that's going to be more how do you deal with fractures, severe bleeding, um, and standard precautions, which is the idea that we need to protect ourselves from blood and other bodily fluids, so how do you appropriately don gloves or what other protective equipment might you need in the event of an emergency. Um, New York City, um, so not everybody's here, but because we're here, I'm bringing this up. Um, Mm -hmm. They have free mental health first aid, um, which is an amazing training that helps you recognize mental illness and substance misuse, um, which again in in 2019 is a very valuable um, training to have. Mm -hmm. Um, And then going back to that unfortunate reality of gun violence, um, active shooter training. Is important and a lot of these trainings are free so you know don't think that it's gonna put you out um, you know that you're gonna have to spend a, an exorbitant amount of money most of them try to offer them for a low cost or free so that you actually are gonna get trained mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, certainly making sure that we stay up on whatever training we've gotten. Right. Don't do it once and assume that it's with you forever. No. Most of them expire in you know, a year or two. And again, refreshing within those periods is going to be vital.
0: Totally. And I'm going to take this opportunity to say again that we may think we are adverse to issues, illness, accidents, uh, but they do happen, and they happen when we least expect it. Right. Um, so please remember. Um, so how would you recommend that we educate a community like on an emergency protocol or procedure so you know I
1: think prevention is sort of the first part of that and we always prevention seems to be the first part of any educational uh, intervention but um, make sure that people are seeing their primary care doctor for a yearly checkup that allergies and illnesses are documented um, and that we're carrying our inhalers or EpiPens, right? So that's the first part of educating Mm -hmm. is that, hey, we can prevent some emergencies from happening. Are you well and are you, you know, if you have an illness, are we carrying the appropriate medical supplies? Then we're going to create that emergency action plan, right? right? So we're going to make sure that all the important stakeholders, local EMS, administrators, that we've reviewed it, Mm -hmm. and we review it every single year or maybe more than that, um, and that we know what we're doing. Um, You're not going to get a lot of resistance creating a plan. Um, Maybe you'll get resistance in bringing in a training that costs money, but I think everyone's going to be on board with sitting down for even a brief moment of time and just creating an outline Mm -hmm. for what we can do if something happens. Mm -hmm. Um, And then ideally, we schedule an annual meeting where dancers, administrators, whoever can ask questions, can review things. Um, In a lot of settings, the best practice is to really stage an emergency and go through the steps so that you're not just thinking cognitively, but you've also put some physical effort into what that looks like. so that would be great but again maybe time is limited resources are limited so if we can create the plan I think that's a great first step in making sure that um, we've done what we need to do in terms of educating um, educating our
0: dancers and our staff on best practices the other thing that um, I'm thinking about too because so you said make sure you get your annual physical and you know all these other things um, regarding your physical health but I think it's also important to keep in mind like if you're a part of Summer Stage in New York City and it's 95 degrees outside, like, um, okay, first you might be sweating a lot, so like, watch the floor, or you know, are you hydrated mm-hmm. and have you eaten enough? And um, additionally, you know, you know, you're going into your ninth, God forbid, hour of <laughs> rehearsal, <laughs> and when you are tired, uh, you're mm-hmm. more prone to accidents happening. So, I mean, like, being mindful of these other um, intrinsic and extrinsic factors as well.
1: Absolutely, and. I kind of thought of this sort of later in the podcast, but it can absolutely slide in right here. Um, That idea that, do you check and see whether people have an emergency plan? So you mentioned Summer Stage or any place that you're gonna go perform. Have you asked them if they have an emergency plan before you bring your dance company or your dancers to this venue? Mm -hmm. Because you might wanna think about that. If they don't have a plan, you kind of, I mean, again, we get that false sense of security, but if something happens, have you just put yourself in a worst case scenario where there's absolute chaos? Mm-hmm. So it is our responsibility to say, you know what? You don't have a plan in place. Right. Let's either make one or I'm not comfortable um, participating in this. And that's how we create change. Yeah. Right. If you're, if you're performing in a theater that doesn't have an AED, why are you doing that? Right. Can we have a discussion? Can we talk with the
0: board? Can we find out why there isn't one here? And can we get one? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. OK, Lauren, hit me up. <laughs> can you, can you give, any, give me an example of how a protocol would run? All right, so I didn't want to do too much
1: of the worst case. <laughs> I was okay. thinking, like, we could go really dark. <laughs> and in my head, I'm like, I'm going to make a scenario. And then the word, I'm like, no, 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 I'm not. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Just inviting bad juju into yeah. the world. So I'm going to keep it vague. Great. Um, it. Okay. But a good emergency protocol ensures that 911 is called quickly and I think that's, you know, we always laugh about it in CPR training because they'll start treating and they've not called 911 yet and you're like, that's the most important thing. Yep. So a good protocol ensures that 911 is going to be called ASAP and that chaos is minimized, mm-hmm. right? So that's having someone at the helm that's having everyone with a role that we're not running around, like chickens with our head cut off, we don't know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, If we've made a quality emergency action plan, we've reviewed it, then we'll know the correct address for EMS and directions on how to get there. Mm -hmm. Again, that seems very basic, but in the heat of the moment, you're on the phone with the dispatcher, and you don't have that address right in front of your face, you may blank. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you may panic. I don't actually know where I am. And they're asking you, how do you get to that studio? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So that should all be written in the plan. So a well-run emergency protocol is going to have that right in front of your face so that you don't have to think. It's going to have the locations for equipment. Mm-hmm. So, again, you don't have to think about where the AED is. It's on a piece of paper, and then you can just autopilot get it. Yeah. It will also tell you where the nearest hospital is. That's important. You need to be able to direct EMS, okay, this is the one that we need to go to, or where are you gonna send our patient? Or it's not, maybe it's not EMS worthy, you're just gonna send someone with you know, a fracture or dislocation to the hospital. Mm-hmm. You need to know where the nearest one is. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, best case scenario is that a life is saved because we were all able to keep the scene controlled, we were able to keep it safe, and provide the quickest care um, that, yeah, quickest care possible. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a plan in place, mm-hmm. I mean, plain and simple, someone could die. Right. Like That's, that's the worst-case scenario. Yeah. Um, as I was mentioning, when you're in a heated situation, you're not going to think as clearly, um, or you'll think clearly but in a different way. Yeah. Um, and so some of those simple instructions can be the difference between wasting time, when time is often critical, mm-hmm. um, or executing um, as soon as possible. Has a couple examples. Um, at some locations, for instance, you might need to dial a nine before nine one one. Like, let's say you don't have a cell phone on you, wasting time mm-hmm. dialing over and over and over again. I mean that. There you go. That's right. an example of something really horrible that could have been easily easily addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, another example would be not knowing where the AED is. Right. So you know it's there but you can't remember where. And so you're running around, screaming, trying to find it. That's creating additional anxiety for everyone else, um, and we're wasting time. Mm -hmm. Um, Or maybe no one's sure of the role. So kind of what you brought up is everybody assumes that someone else is doing it, and then 911 actually isn't ever called. Um, And again, I think it's important to mention that in something like cardiac arrest, for each minute that defibrillation is delayed, we're – you know, reducing our chance of survival by anywhere from seven to ten percent. Mm-hmm. So, these things need to actually happen extremely quickly. And yeah. you cannot assume that if there isn't a plan in place that that's going to happen because right. everyone's scared. <laughs> so, we need some guidelines, like your comfort blanket. I have my EAP and I have my piece of paper, and I just I know if I have it in front of me, we're going to be okay. we're going to be okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the one thing um, I can also think of to contribute to that too is. Um, If you're in a new theater and you are in the catacombs of the theater (laughs) (laughs) and there is no cell phone reception and you haven't yet dialed into the Wi-Fi, get yourself on top of that. Exactly. Okay. Are there things to uh, always have on hand in case of an emergency? So going right back to your other point,
1: um, having a phone, Mm -hmm. whether that is a cell phone or a landline, you need to know what you need. So we can't always assume that a cell phone is going to work. Mm -hmm. Um, And you were talking about the catacombs of the theater. Mm -hmm. We have an athletic training room at a a dance theater that absolutely does not get cell reception. That would be a huge problem Mm -hmm. if you're trying to call 911. So we have a landline there, and that's something important to remember. Um, So, yeah, that's... One of the biggest things, do you have a method of communication to call 911? Very important. Have an EAP, right? Have your plan, have it visible. It should be in every studio, it should be right there where people can see it. You know, if you're in a weird park where there isn't a place to post it, it should be somewhere accessible that you could run to your bag and you have it there. Mm -hmm. Um, Laminated so it can't get wet, right? And then you can't read the writing. So, Mm -hmm. really important there.
0: Wait, Lauren, an EAP, it's an emergency action plan. Yes. Okay. Just wanted to say it out loud. (laughs) Go ahead. Yes,
1: EAP. That's what I'm talking about. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, beyond that, it's more individual. So, you know, if you have a severe allergy, you need to have an EpiPen on you. Mm -hmm. And people need to know where the EpiPen is in case you cannot get your EpiPen. Mm -hmm. Same goes for inhalers or glucagon injections if you have diabetes. Um, that's all really important. First aid kits can be helpful, but again, depends on your expertise. If you don't feel comfortable dressing a wound, I'm not really sure that that's going to help you. Maybe someone else could use it. So mm-hmm. it's something to definitely consider. Um, and then non-latex gloves, mm-hmm. um, and hand sanitizer, right? So if we do have to help dress something or stop bleeding, we have something to protect ourselves. Um, but again, I think my, Sort of emphasis will be that you need to call 911. Right. Right. They're the experts. They do this all the time for their job. And so the sooner they can get there to help you, then that's great because yeah. then you don't need to have the whole kit and caboodle with you because maybe you don't know how to execute as well. And there's nothing wrong with that. Let the professionals do it. Absolutely.
0: Going back to that EpiPen, those things are expensive, but I <laughs> just want to say, <laughs> um, that it's your insurance policy, it's your lifeline. Um, so if you are someone listening who is on the fence about your EpiPen, please just go get one for yourself and everyone around. Yeah, that's my thank you for that. Problem. <laughs> um, um, is there anything I missed, Lauren, that you want to bring to the table? So I
1: think the last thought that I want to put in is that when you have to deal with an emergency situation, whether you were a bystander and you saw something really traumatic, or you did actually have to play a role in. Either saving life or unfortunately losing a life, and that's not your fault. It's just we can't, you know, sometimes save everyone. Realizing that self-care is imperative, you will have some some feelings around that situation. Um, and certainly for all the healthcare practitioners out there, you may have to continue working. Yeah. Right? You know, if you have to deal with a severe fracture or dislocation or something worse you're probably going to have to go treat more patients after that. Yeah. And so realizing that you need to take some time to debrief, whether that's with a colleague or a trusted friend or a counselor, um, and realizing that sometimes one talk isn't enough and that you know it's okay to admit that you're struggling after dealing with that critical incident um, and getting the help that you need and realizing that that's totally normal mm-hmm. because this kind of stuff isn't normal for the human emotion and brain to process. So... Don't be afraid to seek help if you are struggling after witnessing
0: uh, an emergency or having to engage in helping someone. Absolutely. Um, an anecdote that I personally was in the audience, oh gosh, I don't know how many years ago yeah, it was. Six, I think it was 2012. 2012. What's it now? Okay, so seven, seven years, years ago. ago. Wow. Um, and witnessed someone going into cardiac arrest, and I was in the audience and um, I'm sure it was to make sure that EMS could get to the stage, but they didn't close the curtain, so we watched this whole thing unfold. And I remember um, definitely being traumatized and very emotional, um, and then going home and going to bed and then waking up and going to work as if nothing had happened. And I remember like in the middle of the day, I just I couldn't. I just kind of lost it um, because it didn't really take into account that you know, someone who I knew pretty well um, could have died. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it it took me quite a while to get over that um, and talking to a lot of people and taking time for myself. So, yes, Lauren. Absolutely. Good thing to bring up.
1: (laughs) Yes, for sure.
0: And realizing
1: that that is not uncommon with the theaters not closing the curtains because they probably didn't have an emergency protocol that really explicitly listed that stuff. Um, And We've actually grown a lot um, at the conservatory I work at in making that a huge part of the emergency action plan because mm-hmm. you can actually spare a lot of people from suffering, from seeing a traumatic injury or something worse um, by just simply closing the curtain. curtain. So put that in your plan yeah. Um, so people don't have to see something that, that could be very traumatizing. Yeah, thanks.
0: Lauren, thank you. Is is there any way, um, may, perhaps through Harkness Center where you work, that people can get in contact with you where if they you have questions? you work as well. I too. also <laughs> work there where we work together, um, where people can get in contact with you um, to ask you questions about emergency protocols or, or anything like that.
1: Yeah, for sure. I'm happy to give out my email. It's a topic I'm very passionate about. Mm-hmm. So that's Lauren Period McIntyre. And hopefully that will be spelled somewhere. Yes. I don't know. I won't be obnoxious to spell it right there. Yeah.
0: And that's at nyulangone.org. Right. Absolutely. Great. And I'll put that information in show notes awesome. as well as the link to the Harkness Center for Dance Injuries website.
1: Wonderful. Yep. Thanks for joining us, Lauren. Thank you so much. Yep.
0: On behalf of Ellie and myself, I, Marissa Schaefer, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzy, and dancer designer Katie Dean crafted our visual image. To those of you who have made this season possible by contributing to DanceWell, we are infinitely grateful. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Your donations help us to pay for SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you too would like to make a contribution to DanceWell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you like what you hear, we invite you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search Dancewell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website at www.dancewellpodcast.com. If you have questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcastgmail.com. At Bye.